Hello everyone in podcast land, this is Karen Wickham, your host of STAT, shocking traumas and treatments coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and welcome to today's episode, part three of Dr. Lobotomy. First of all, and most importantly, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone out there that's been listening to this podcast has given such amazing, incredible support and feedback. I just am so overwhelmed. I know I keep saying it, but the feeling just isn't going away. I have to pinch myself sometimes uh, because I can't believe that I'm actually fulfilling my dream and having people who are interested (laughs) in taking the journey with me. So thank you. Even though you're all are near and dear to my heart. I do want to give an extra shout out to those of you that left me some iTunes reviews. So thank you to Krista Lee Bird, General Hannibal of Robots, Great for Babies, Ambeck22, and I do need to say sorry to Sarah of the Salty Canadian because I butchered her name. Her name is Sarah Pellerin Huffman. So Sorry about that, Sarah, and maybe you guys can give a listen to Sarah's podcast, The Salty Canadian. So really feeling the love from those reviews. Thank you very much. And anybody who is willing to go over to iTunes and give me a review, I'd really appreciate it. It helps get my podcast out there, and I really do want to know how you feel. Good, bad, or indifferent, I just want to put out the best podcast possible. So thank you. Now it's time to get started on episode five, part three of the Dr. Lobotomy series. So here we go. I last left off with Freeman and Watts performing those horrible conscious lobotomies. Now, during this time, Walter was getting restless and frustrated by restrictions that were being imposed upon him. These weren't really restrictions, but rules of the hospital that all doctors, surgeons, hospital staff, medical professionals had to follow. He believed that he should be exempt of these rules because he was such a prodigy, a genius. Now, here are some of these crazy rules that he found unnecessary, that a surgeon must perform surgery. And as we all know, he wasn't one. So he thought he should be able to do that without or be given surgical privileges. They must have scheduled our time. He felt that he should be able to perform a lobotomy whenever he wished based on what, however he saw it, whether it being an emergency or just needed to be done in the way of research. He didn't like to have to schedule time. He felt it ridiculous to use sterile technique well, because it wasted time. That's that's the only reason. And he hated having to follow safety rules and regulations and responsibilities in general. And he didn't like to be under the watchful eye of the heads of the hospital or just fellow colleagues. He wanted to simplify his surgery so that he could perform more of them on his own and then bring it to as many doctors and hospitals and psychiatrists as possible. He also wanted to be able to perform this surgery in his office, away from the prying eyes of the hospital administrators. 
So while looking for a more simplistic and refined way of performing lobotomy, he continued to experiment with different modes and treatments of existing procedures, like the use of ECT and metrazole, the seizure-inducing drug, to work with people with depression, agitated depression, um, and the like. I'm going to tell you a story, well, a true story, of one such patient that Walter was treating with his experimental procedure. And he caused unnecessary pain and suffering in his usual reckless, cold, criminal, and sadistic self. Freeman was treating a patient with ECT for agitated depression. He was performing this procedure in his office, which for obvious reasons was unsafe. He had done that so many times this way that it had become standard procedure for him. As discussed before, ECT caused seizures, sometimes so violent that bones would break. There would be several different interventions that could decrease the incident of these injuries, such as some medications, sedation, and having the patient being held down by several people. As barbaric as it sounds, it did at least stop or prevent many injuries. Normally, Freeman would have his secretary or a relative of the patient assist in holding the patient down during the convulsions. But the secretary declined. She really didn't want to have anything to do with this to begin with. And the patient's husband couldn't help because he had serious health concerns. Of course, not much would stop Freeman from continuing on with any procedure that he had his mindset on doing. So he went ahead and administered the ECT anyway, unassisted. During the first convulsion, the patient broke both of her legs. And here is a note he wrote in, his, in her chart. I gave her an injection of morphine and left her too soon to see some patients at the hospital. When I returned, the fat was in the fire, the woman was writhing in pain, and her husband was outraged. The patient sued, asking for $50,000 in damages. Freeman settled with them out of court. He never liked to settle anything in court because it would leave a paper trail. So this is a quote that Freeman said in regards to this incident. I felt a mixture of regret self-justification, anger at my secretary for her refusal to help, self-condemnation, humiliation at the disapproving attitude of my colleagues and confidence that the matter would be settled and the damages would be covered by insurance. When the matter was settled, I offered to shake hands with the patient and her husband, but I was just glared at. The patient's subsequent relapse in depression convinced Freeman that he should have performed lobotomy instead of just ECT. So when all was said and done after the horrible abuse this woman suffered, all he could think about was that he should have lobotomized her instead. Relative strangers weren't the only victims of Freeman. His family members were also victimized by him. Although all his procedures were crimes against humanity, as far as I'm concerned, but brutalizing a family member is particularly despicable. His family likely wouldn't know of his dark activities. 
If they knew anything, it was as translated by him. They would likely see him as an upstanding, well-respected physician who was heroically saving lives. His family would also love and trust him. His aunt Florence Keene had fallen into a deep depression after her beloved father W.W. Keene died. Florence was a widow and lived and cared for her father in his sunset years. He lived to a ripe old age of 94. So this woman was depressed. She was elderly herself and frail. And so Walter zoned in and narrowed his sights on her. She was right for the pickings and completely vulnerable. Of course, she willingly agreed. Freeman even got his physician brother Norman involved. Walter was experimenting at the time with metrazole. I talked about this terrible drug. It is used to induce seizures. The theory is that the seizures kind of reset the brain, therefore helping with depression, anxiety, and other mental unwellnesses. Metrazole has horrible side effects. It causes terrible nightmare-like hallucinations that even when the patient wakes up, they remember them. Doctors who have watched the patients go through this have reported that they look like they have plunged into the depths of hell, shaking the doctors just from watching it. It was also very hard to control the amount given. As you can imagine, people are of different weights and heights, builds, and even metabolically. So most of the time, this drug caused some type of injury and it as well caused breaking of bones and death. So I'm going to read what Freeman wrote as his doctor's notes describing the treatment with his aunt. She began twitching, then opened her mouth widely, arched her back and stiffened into a tonic convulsion, which is a type of stiffening, sudden stiffening and contraction of muscles for 20 seconds, followed by clonic movements which is the more rhythmic or jerking of several muscles for another 25 seconds. Then she relaxed and stopped breathing for many seconds. She turned blue and then spontaneously started to breathe again. Gradually the color returned to her face and also to my brother's face. Jesus, he had said and wiped his brow. His aunt was clinically dead for many seconds and luckily she revived. Yet he decided to do this injection another five more times. She passed away years later, and this is what he wrote upon her death. She remembered me in her will, but I doubt she ever forgave me. He clearly knew what he was doing was wrong, and he found it amusing. This new treatment that he came upon was, in essence, a non-surgical lobotomy. It was being performed by an Italian physician by the name of Dr. Fiamberti. He used a pre-existing opening in the skull, the eye socket, to access the brain. He went through the thin plate of bone separating the top of the eyes, the eye socket, from the brain cavity. If done properly, it avoided the fragile regions of the sinuses and optic nerves. Fianberti would make a puncture to inject alcohol or formaldehyde into the brain tissue and killing it. Freeman knew right away that this was going to be the route he was going to take to access the frontal lobe to make his blind cuts. 
He called Fianberti a failure because he didn't kill enough tissue, that he wasn't aggressive enough. Freeman had now found a treatment that would be cheap because it didn't require the use of a hospital, an anesthesiologist, surgeons, the operating room, nurses, drugs, tools, you name it. He could do it in the safety and privacy of his private practice, and it was portable. He had anonymity, people, doctors were finding out that the prefrontal lobotomies were causing terrible side effects in patients and were not successful. It was bringing on too much heat and that was inconvenient and threatening to him. The surgery needed to be refined and now he had a way. Freeman's new motto for lobotomy was, get them early and get them often. It's frightening. He immediately started practicing on cadavers. He was using different types of instruments. He tried using needles, but they would break and he needed something, as he said, slender, sharp, and tough. And he settled on something similar to an ice pick and made wide sweeping cuts in the brain. I'd like you to listen to this next clip where you will hear Dr. Freeman's son explain where the first tool came from and from Walter a little bit about the treatment itself. Here we go. We didn't have a refrigerator, we had an ice box. The first ice picks came right out of our kitchen drawer and they worked like a charm. Turning now to the operation itself, very little preparation is necessary for transorbital lobotomy. The instrument was put in above the eyeball and in the plane of the nose. You could feel it hit the roof of the orbit and then with a tap of a hammer you could knock it through. Um, the whole thing would take three or four minutes. There you have it. All the tools and procedure necessary for the transorbital lobotomy. Even though he had not operated on people, he was convinced that the patients would recover without any changes in personality or any deficits of initiative and energy that plagued many of the prefrontal lobotomy patients. And he couldn't have been more wrong. He professed that he could do the same amount of damage in seven minutes with a transorbital lobotomy that he could do in two hours in surgery with a prefrontal lobotomy. He would use an ECT to shock him and knock him out and an ice pick and hammer to do the cuts. And an hour later, he would get them up and walk him out of his office. His very first transorbital lobotomy patient was a woman by the name of Ellen Ionesco. And I would like to tell you about her story. Ellen was diagnosed with manic depression bipolar, as it's called nowadays. Her depression was so severe that she would be bedridden for months. She would have fits of violence in which she would sometimes hit her daughter and would require restraint. She was also suicidal at times. Her husband sought out Freeman, only he didn't know that Freeman was looking for his first transorbital lobotomy patient. He sold the treatment to the Ionescos as he could manipulate and sell as any good snake oil salesman. 
Mr. and Mrs. Ionesco brought their four-year-old daughter with them, and they had her sit in the waiting room as her mother was being brutalized in the next room. You think that they might have made other arrangements. But Freeman was oblivious to this kind of sensibility. He shocked Ellen with ECT and then performed the lobotomy with his ice pick and hammer that he brought from home. Her daughter's name as an adult was Angela Foster. And this is what she remembered. Quote, she wasn't well and she couldn't walk by herself. She was supported by Freeman and her father to a taxi to take her home. She stayed in bed for a few days and her eyes were swollen and black. She had asked her aunt, who was assisting with the care of her mother, what had happened. And she told this little four-year-old girl that her mother had just had surgery through her eyeballs. Can you imagine how scary that would have been? Ugh. Anyway, she improved and had that same zombie-like personality. She was able to now do more housework and help out in the family's jewelry store, but her personality had completely changed. Ionesco had given Freeman a very expensive gold watch from the jewelry store, and of course, he took it. And then soon after that, he started a sexual affair with her that went on for years. Freeman was known to be a serial cheater and also to cheat with his patients. I'd like to take a second here to indulge a little as I'm known to do. And I've because I've thought about this a lot, this whole major surgery, this invasive, horrible thing that he does to people period, but is doing now in his office. So put in everyday terms, I'm going to talk about it like it's me. I'm going about my everyday life and I'm say I'm walking down the street and I get tasered to the head until I'm unconscious and I have multiple seizures and then I'm tasered more and more times. Then someone takes an ice pick and shoves it into my eye sockets missing my eyes, of course, and wiggles us around from the left to the right and back and forth many times, and then they remove it. I collapse to the ground, or I'm already on the ground, and when I wake up, I get up and I walk home and sleep for a few days. Now let's, now let's take me to the hospital. Do you think they would have just sent me home? Or would they say, you have two penetrating head wounds with severe frontal lobe damage, you need a CT scan and a battery of tests. You are going to be started immediately on antibiotics, be admitted to the CCU ICU, put on full monitoring. You will have a neurologist, a neurosurgeon, and a critical care doctor caring for you. Only after a lengthy stay in the hospital will you be sent home with close follow-up, occupational, physiotherapy, psychology, psychiatrists, and your life would never be the same. You would remain permanently brain damaged. And that's what he did. Sure, we have that knowledge now and the resources now, but come on, he knew that, people knew that. And what drives me crazy is that it was allowed to be carried on. And why? Because people didn't want to interfere. It was easier to ignore. 
It was easier to push it under the carpet and hope that, you know, it'll go away. Anyway, I'm going to end my little rant there. Moving forward, this procedure became highly popular and became the standard of treatment for most types of mental illness, neurological diseases, or disturbances like unsavory behavior that any man, woman, and child could have. Now, Freeman coveted the role as the bearer of a new and safe and more widely available psychosurgery. He wanted to be the primary instrument for change, the person who brought the surgical treatment of psychiatric illness to the masses in such desperate need. He cared nothing that the people got better. This was just a positive side effect. And as quoted by a colleague, if the treatment worked, Freeman was a success. And if it failed, he would just try something else. As you can hear, Freeman's psychopathy was growing worse. He was becoming more untethered and somehow was still getting away with it. There was no question that he had or was becoming a full-blown psychopath. Freeman's criteria for lobotomy was forever changing. He wanted to operate as soon as possible when someone showed signs of mental illness. Again, his motto now was operate early and often. Watts believed that surgery should only be done as a last result. Diagnosing a mental illness requires quite a bit of time, assessment, observation, and careful care and management. There could be many, many reasons why sometimes a person is unwell. It could be from a sudden traumatic event, like a death of a loved one, a sudden loss of health. It could be a slow and insidious development of schizophrenia. It could come from PTSD, head injury, chronic depression, any innumerable amount of causes, biological or environmental. And a quick and sudden treatment would never be advised unless it was an emergency like a suicide attack, which is treated symptomatically, and certainly not with an assault to the brain. Lobotomy should never be early and often. The brain is a beautiful and complicated thing and thus needs to be treated as such. Watts' belief towards Freeman was, and he quoted, now that he has tasted blood, he was out for more. Freeman's response to Watts was, he still thinks the operation is a major one and should be done only in a hospital by a trained neurosurgeon. Well, I am equally insistent that it's a minor operation since it involves no cutting or sewing and that it should be performed by psychiatrists. He believes that each should be studied in great detail and watch for developments before the next case is undertaken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he's losing his own argument. He's arguing with himself and losing it. Freeman knew that he couldn't continue to use this ice pick to perform his surgery, so he went to a surgical tool maker and had a tool that could withstand up to 25 pounds of pressure, and he named it the Orbitoclast, and it was made of it was basically a surgical steel ice pick. So he went out about promoting the procedure with the same amount of circus performance, like vigor he loved. He loved the reaction he got from people when performing this procedure, and he performed it in such a way that it would create a maximum 
amount of desired effect, which was horror, gasping, vomiting, and fainting, the more the better. And he continued to receive much negative response to the procedure. He had difficulty finding any physician who would be willing to perform this. Freeman believed that neurosurgeons were jealous and territorial because he had come up with such an ingenious life-saving procedure and that he was taking patients away from neurosurgeons. Now, this is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous accusation for many reasons because the one thing that stood out to me the most was that he couldn't possibly take patients away from neurosurgeons because it can be argued that none of his patients needed brain surgery of any kind to begin with. Freeman boasted that, after a few hours of instructions, any doctor, psychiatrist, podiatrist, foot doctor, smart ass he is, or medical resident could learn it. Freeman would contradict himself by trying to point out how simple the surgery was, and then he would perform it in such a way that it would enhance the brutality of it. He'd show it to anyone, and I mean anyone. Screw the patient's confidentiality and their right to humane care with dignity. He would perform it to psychiatrists, surgeons and physicians, friends and family. He would invite in newspaper guys, anyone. Any possible interest a fellow physician might have had was quickly extinguished by the barbaric, reckless, medieval torture-like brutality of it. And here's a quote from a colleague. There was a certain amount of horror and fascination. So here was a fellow esteemed surgeon in one case that had a strong reaction, and he bragged about this to no end. Edwin Zabriskie was a 74-year-old clinical neurologist who had seen bloody combat during World War I, and he was a professor emeritus at Columbia University School of Medicine. He watched one demonstration and fainted dead away, an event that Freeman called a climax of his advocacy of the procedure. Now, I don't understand at all how this was a climax of his advocacy. How did humiliating an esteemed war hero and physician help his cause? How, does, how did showing it as horrible and terrible and brutal as was sell it for it being an amazing thing. It just shows you how this guy's brain works. One thing that propelled lobotomy into widespread popularity was money. During the 1940s and 50s, lobotomy seemed to offer a solution to relieve the hospital of the costs of what was running nothing more than a warehouse of tortured and abused souls not only for the patients themselves, but for their pocketbook, but of course. In the hospital's view, patients were not getting treatments, they were not returning to society as productive members. There was no relief from their hell. The hard, cold truth was that lobotomy shamelessly and criminally emptied these hospitals. Lobotomies were given to patients with all kinds of mental illness, brain damage, neurological disease, as I mentioned before. They were psychologically and physically incapacitated by it. 
so that they were much easier to care for, especially those who were crippled by anxiety, depression, agitation, and anxiety. But let's not forget all the other side effects that I mentioned before. So sometimes it would make the person pliable and easy to care for, and sometimes it would make them much worse, either full care, or they would become very hostile or just difficult to manage. Either way, it was nothing more than brutal, intentional brain damage, an attempt to empty hospitals to make their financial situation better. Freeman was receiving letters from all over the country, sometimes half a dozen inquiries a day from people who were convinced that they or their relative could benefit from the lobotomy. So he had finally achieved what he craved, fame, attention, accolades, and fortune, a narcissist dream. His success, that I loosely call it, drove him even further into his madness. He felt like he was untouchable. No one was safe from him. He could pretty much talk anyone into a lobotomy or to justify having a lobotomy. And here are some quotes coming from the institutions themselves. We can report results in terms of discharges from hospitals and restoration of economic competence. Lobotomy saved time, wear and tear on the hospitals and money. I do not hear one thing about the patient's improvement in their lives. Patients being sent home because they are better. It's about money and emptying hospitals. Now that we have discussed all those psychiatric hospitals that were overcrowded and under heavy financial stress, there is another type of hospital that was getting assaulted by lobotomy. And these were the veterans hospitals. They embraced lobotomy as a solution for overcrowding. Here we have brave men and women who come back alive and horribly wounded, physically and or psychologically. And they're at a hospital that's treating them. And they embrace lobotomy as a viable treatment. Are you kidding me? These heroic men and women that go off to fight for their country, come back somehow alive, but in, of course, terrible shape, and they're operated on further with a lobotomy and here's a quote that I love and I think it just sums all of this up no patient with bilateral injuries to the frontal lobe could ever earn a living this was a mutilating surgery that would change a functional medical disorder into an organic one for which there was no treatment add to the fact that many of the veterans had already had injuries from the war, they were adding a head injury on top of a head injury. As I've continued on with this mini-series, I've continued to find more and more, uncover more and more information. And this one was particularly disturbing to me. And even though I know it will lengthen this mini-series a bit, I really thought it was important to include it. And this was the, what was happening to the veterans. I came across this document that basically showed the concern between the military and the government, even though it's you know, kind of the same, but they were basically having CYI or CYA or cover your ass documents to make sure that you know they wouldn't get into too much trouble with what they were wanting to do. And what that was, was to perform the lobotomy on 
the veterans that they felt would benefit from the surgery. And they wanted to make sure that they had all their I's dotted and their T's crossed. So this is part of this document I'm going to read to you. The question arises, however, as to whether it is or not feasible to remove approximately one cc of brain tissue from the frontal lobe distal to this section. They wanted to put the ice pick in and where it would stop, remove a bit of brain tissue. So further on, there is no question that removal of such a specimen will be of no consequence to the patient. No consequence. Moving a piece of brain tissue from the frontal lobe is of no consequence. Our brain is amazing. Who knows what they were robbing of that person? Was there a memory in there? Was there a anything? It doesn't matter. They, they had no business doing it. Continuing on the letter, the question is rather a legal one and its clarification should aim at preclusion of any latter claims from the patient's relatives. One might, of course, obtain the relative's permission for such procedure. However, I'm afraid that one might run the risk that removal of the brain tissue would be misinterpreted and that the relatives will feel that the patient is used as a guinea pig. I would like to emphasize the unique opportunity afforded to such valuable biopsy material to use for scientific investigation. I feel like I am like in a dream reading this twisted letter from a horror movie. This is a letter saying we got to cover our asses legally to perform like crazy medical experiments, human medical experiments. So the doctor involved was, or questioning was Dr. John Baird, and he was asking if it was legal to cut out one centimeter of brain tissue for further studies, since they were already in there. Veterans suffering from a traumatic brain injury should never have been operated on. Another operation was adding another brain injury on top of the one they already had. This whole subject of veterans being abused makes me sick. All of it does, but there's just a little bit of extra evil involved here. When it came to ethics, this is a word that didn't exist in Freeman's brain, except for it to be a nuisance. Here is a quote by one of his colleagues. Ethical deprivation of lobotomy was a non-issue for Freeman. Ethics were his blind spot. He considered the rigorous antisepsis before, during, and after surgery, annoying obstacles to treatment. He lumped ethical argumentation along with Freud's analysis as forms of intellectual dithering, activities that in, was in no way beneficial to the lives of patients. Back up here. Putting an ice pick that was not clean in between into someone's brain and not cleaning it. I know I just said that. I'm getting flustered. Putting the ice pick into someone's brain without using a septic technique put the patient at probably unavoidable risk of meningitis, any kind of infection of the brain, leading to death, further brain damage, etc. 
and he called that intellectual dithering. So now he has, with this popularity and his ego growing and his psychopathy deteriorating or getting worse, he had now targeted veterans and so many other of the population, he was now moving into a whole new area. And that is with children and palliative care patients. Freeman started to lobotomize palliative patients, patients that are dying or about to die. For the patients that were suffering from much pain, he thought that they wouldn't care about the pain anymore. So he thought he would experiment by lobotomizing frail, sick, weak patients at the end of their life to see if they would stop caring about the pain, even though the pain still existed. Often the palliative patient would die because of the surgery, because their bodies were too weak and frail to manage the surgery. And this robbed them of a chance to properly say goodbye to their families and feel at peace. And it took away their dignity. I'm going to end this episode right here because the next part involves him lobotomizing children. And I want to take the time to discuss this in the most delicate way possible. And maybe talk a little bit about childhood mental illness and how it's being treated. And I think that this will likely wrap up the lobotomy series. So that's it for today. Thank you everyone for listening. I would just like to do a little bit of housekeeping here. I tried last episode to make it a little bit interesting and I don't think I hit the mark on that. Um, Yes, my song was meant to be terrible. Anyway, here are some of my social media sites. Twitter, you can find me at stat underscore tales. My Facebook discussion group, which I would love you to join, is called Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments group. Please come on over and join in on the discussion. There's many amazing people there. I have a webpage that's a work in progress, but still pretty good, and it's called Stat Tales. So www.stattales.ca. And my email is kwick at stattails.com. I'll have all the information listed in my podcast notes. And once again, if you could just go over to iTunes for me and leave a review, I would be very appreciative of that. I'm so appreciative of the ones that were left. And I would love to feel the love or hear how I can do a better job Thank you very much. But we are not done yet. Because it's time for the suture room. Come on in. Put your feet up. Lie down on the stretcher. It's a little hot out today, so we've got some nice cool AC going. But I do have you a couple of comfy pillows. I stole an extra one just for you today. I even got you a nice bologna sandwich and a glass or a little cupette of cranberry juice. 
So let's dim the lights and settle back for me to tell you a wild, wacky, weird true story that took place during my time as an ER nurse. Here we go. Okay, the name of today's story is Ran Out of Nine Lives. People bring some pretty strange and bizarre things into the triage area in ER, in the ER period. One day this woman had come in with her child and she was carrying a Ziploc bag with what looked like a kind of messed up stuffed animal in it. I asked her in, asked her what brought her in today to the Emerge. She placed this big Ziploc bag on the table and pointed at it. I said, what is that? She said, it's a dead cat. Why did you bring a dead cat into the Emerge room? So she's like almost hyperventilating and she says, well, my son, he touched the dead cat. Okay, I said, and I want him tested for all these diseases and rabies and everything you can think of because for sure I'm worried that he's going to be sick. And while you're at it, I want you to fully test the cat as well. So I told her that, you know, we can't test the cat for any diseases. You know, that's not what we do here. And that, you know, I'd be more than happy to have her see the doctor and see what he had to say. She really wasn't satisfied with that and she wouldn't take the dead cat with her. So here I have this cat. Well, if you leave us alone and we have a little bit of downtime, this is at night, of course, we might get up to some shenanigans. We took this cat and what it actually ended up being mostly bones and fur, nothing wet or gross or anything. So we took it out and put our gloves on, whatever, and put it on a stretcher and pretend it to have it hooked up to monitors, <laughs> IV and just totally hooked up. And we called one of our doctors to come down to the, the trauma room immediately. There was a patient that I needed to see. And he comes running down the hallway, bursting through the doors, comes in, stands at the end of the bed, sees this cat and says, too late, and turns around and walks out. <laughs> ah, so these are some of the fun things that we do. <laughs> we have a little bit of extra time on our hands. So I hope you enjoyed this little story. And I look forward to have you join me next week for part four of the Dr. Lobotomy series. And have a great evening. Have a great morning. Have a great day. Be kind to each other. And thank you for joining me on STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And don't forget, sometimes it's the cure that kills you. <laughs>